Welcome to the Pikes Peak Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you. Aren't you glad you have a pastor who's bold enough to uh, tell you what movie to go see and what not to go see? <clears throat> Seriously, yeah, we need a father's in the house. The scriptures say that we have 10,000 teachers, but we have not many fathers. And, and when your dad tells you something is bad for you, and he's doing that out of love, I appreciate that. How about you? I do, I do. Well, good morning, and I, I want to uh, really dive into this message right away. I'm really excited because not only did he hire me, and not only did Pike Speak hire me, but we went through the next class, my wife and I, last month, which is our kind of a new member class, and we just found out that we passed. So we graduated, and so we get to be new members here. And so if you're not, if you haven't gone through that, just by a show of hands, how many of you have actually been through the next class? Raise your hand if you have. Yes. So that's a lot of people who are still not sure. So I appreciate all you guys that have gone through it and learned a little bit more. Here's the deal. There's no obligation at the end of the class. But when you, when you come in and you, you take part and you're giving and serving and attending, uh, we want to really spend a couple weeks with you explaining in a little more detail what the church is about, what it means to be a, a member and be a Christian and all those kinds of things, answer questions. You get to meet Barry and Susan Dodd, who are, who are one of our elder couples here, and they're super great. Um, Barry's got one of the sweetest voices you'll ever hear as he teaches, and I'll answer your questions. So I, in March, we're going to run that class again. I, I encourage you to sign up for that. So I'll mention a couple of other things as well. Um, what I deal with the men here at the church, so in, in the adult discipleship area, and the men's ministry kind of falls under me. So if you're a guy and you're in this house, let me hear you with a big amen. amen. All right. And then the women's ministry with Miss Sherry and all the gals who help out there, they're kind of under my area too. So where are the ladies? All right. That's weak, but okay. <clears throat> I mean, if you want to go with that, that's fine. And then there's a MOPS group, and I just introduced a, a, a couple to the MOPS ministry out there. And, and here's how important it is. Raise your hand if you got little kids, okay, if you got little ones, right? And so, right, you're going to sleep sometime like next year, right? And so if you're in the MOPS ministry, you don't realize how much it ministers to other young moms who have little ones. And so I just met a couple out there. And when I said we have MOPS ministry, she's like, oh my God, are you serious? You know, and I had to get on all the information and give it to her because it was really a big deal. And so the MOPS ministry, marriage and couples, any Bible studies or small groups, all those kind of things kind of fall under my area. And I'm just getting my hands wrapped around it. But let me tell you what, I love meeting all the leaders. I love all the stuff that I'm seeing. It's really exciting. So I just want to share a little bit about us because um, it's setting the stage. We've been, my wife and I have been married a little over 20 years now, and we've got five kids, four teenagers and one eight-year-old. And in that process, we haven't lost our mind, almost, several times, but, but not completely. And so being a ministry family, we also own a small business. Um, we've also been bivocational some of that time. We've also got in our past... We've got some serious struggles. We've got alcoholism. We've got both of my parents are in their third marriages. And, and so we've got siblings and half-siblings and step-siblings who now aren't step-siblings anymore and those kinds of things. And in that mix, there's been suicide and there's been abuse and all kinds of things. And the fact that we've made it 20 years plus as a, as a married couple, and we feel like we're as stable as we ever have been right now. And... I, it really just is a miracle. And so part of what we're going to share today is really, uh, part of what I'm going to share today is really life experience for us. This isn't something I'd read out of a book. And so, so I'm excited to share it. 
And the last thing I, I just want you to know is that my life verse has become 2 Corinthians 5.17. So the scripture says that if any man or woman be in Christ, that he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And in 25 years, I really haven't gotten over the moment where Christ gave me the opportunity to throw the old away and to walk away from it and to walk into something new. And until you've ever had that experience and said, I don't want to go to church, I literally sat in my car outside of that same church saying, if, if, if church is what it's about, I don't want it. If Christ is what it's about, and it's about hope and life and love, that's what I'm interested in. And I remember walking down the aisle and making a clear decision on February 28th, 1990, to say that I want, I want to give up my life, the old, and I want to walk in the new. And so that scripture is, is pivotal for everything that we're going to talk about today. And so I want, I want us to, to bring, come back to that many times today. And so let's open our Bibles up to John chapter 12, and then I'm going to... I'm going to pray, but if you're looking on, we want to read a few verses out of John chapter 12. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for today. I thank you that, um, that you're true and not a lie. And I thank you that you're for us and not against us. And I pray that you'd open up our hearts. I desperately ask that you'd move me out of the way and speak. Speak into our hearts, speak into our minds. Cause transformation right where we're at by your word. In Jesus' name. Everybody said... Amen. So in John chapter 12, one of the things we're going to realize is that Jesus is doing something really weird. Jesus is actually sitting with his disciples. He's preparing them for his imminent suffering and death. So it'd be much like, much like if one of us were going to pass away, but we spent a few days sitting our family down, explaining to them what's about to happen. And so, and what our opinion of it and how to deal with it. And so it was a really interesting moment because there's some things in here that he says that, that if we just glean over it, we'll miss some very, very interesting lessons. <clears throat> Before we get into that, I just want to say that defining what we mean by a crisis is important to me. Because when I talk, when I talk about crisis today, there's two things that I want to remember. One is that it doesn't define me. So I want you, everybody to say that it doesn't define me. Now, saying that's one thing, making that a reality is another thing. And if you, if you ever suffered abuse or any of those kinds of things, you know that sometimes it does define you. And so it, we, we don't want it to define us. The second thing is we want to look at it from heaven's perspective. And I think that when we open up the scriptures, we have to struggle with what, what are we talking about here? So the dictionary would call a crisis just a turning point or a condition of instability or danger. So it would be a terrorist attack, right? It's a crisis in our country if we're attacked by a terrorist. If, if you get into a tragic car accident, that's a sudden crisis. And so another definition is a dramatic emotional or circumstantial upheaval. So how many of you got families where it's just drama, right? Tell the truth. You're trying to lie. I can see it on your face. Some people just raising their hand, telling on everybody. Yeah, all my, all my cousins are crazy. I got some of them are crazy. I mean, really crazy. I am not saying that as a metaphor for they're silly or whatever. I mean, they're really crazy. And so, so the fact that I don't have some serious mental illness at this point is, is just a surprise because genetically we're pretty messed up in the Ramsdale family. And so, and so getting saved and having to deal with that was important. But I have to understand what are we talking about when we, we look at a crisis. I define a crisis as an unexpected change which causes pain or struggle. With, an int with intense ramifications and challenges that are usually difficult, <clears throat> excuse me, difficult to recover from. The difference between my hairdresser isn't open today, or my car broke down, or I broke a nail, or my hot tub doesn't work, 
and a crisis is, is that this, is here, this is, becomes threatening to you. It is something that threatens your stability. It's serious, and it's hard to get over. It's hard to recover from. Some, some days I'll just say it means life feels like you're really jacked up. That would be my terminology. I'd use my teenagers, and so they would understand that. So let's read about kind of that moment where Jesus was talking about this, this crisis that he was going into in John chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 23. It says, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a, a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Okay, let's just stop for a second. Sometimes when you read the Bible, you get lost really fast. So I just want you to know, I'm setting the table to say what Jesus is doing is sitting down and he's talking to the disciples, his team, his family there about his imminent suffering and death. I'm lost. Okay. On verse, because right now he's talking about wheat. Okay. And so when you study the scripture, it's worth it to stop and go, what is he talking about? So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to really need to look at that. Let's look at verse 25. It says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in the world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servants also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. This is really important. Verse 27. He says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this reason I came to this hour. And then he prays a prayer. Father, glorify your name. So let's walk through this just a little bit to kind of set the stage for the message. We're, we're looking at Jesus in the middle of a serious crisis. How many of you know that several times in Jesus' life, he went through a faith crisis? And we think of Jesus as being sinless. We think of Jesus as being God. We think of Jesus as being holy. We think of Jesus as being powerful. We think of Jesus as being filled with the Holy Spirit and the epitome of what that means. And yet, in his human life, there was many times where he had a run-in with the enemy. There was many times where he had a run-in with a crisis. And there was many times where he, listen, there was many times, if you just take scripture at face value, he wasn't sure what was going to happen next. And he wasn't sure he liked it. And he was in a crisis of faith. He was saying, I don't know if I like this or not. And this is one of those moments where he's sitting there talking honestly with the, the disciples. And he's explaining the Son of Man is going to be glorified, which means he's going to die and he's going to raise, raise on the third day. And then he talks about the whole wheat thing. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And then he talks about losing your life in order to get eternal life. That's self-explanatory. But then he says, now my soul is troubled. And what you and I need to understand is that he, like us, was having in his soul, deep down in his heart, was having a broken crisis. His heart was breaking. His soul was tearing apart. There was fear. There was doubt. There was anxiety. All of those things that you and I encounter whenever we get into a crisis situation, he was feeling just at that moment. And his reaction is the reaction that I hope we learn from. His reaction is he turns, he turns to the disciples and says, okay, this is going on and my, heart's, my soul is troubled, but what should I do? What should I say about it? So I turn, turn to my father and say, hey, save me from this hour, meaning take me out of the crisis. So let's be honest, okay? When you're in the middle of a crisis, what's your first prayer? When you lose your job, okay? When the wife or the husband leaves, when you, when you get that diagnosis of a serious sickness, when the house burns to the ground, whatever the serious crisis is, your first cry for help is probably solve my problem. Take me out of the pain. Take me out of the discomfort. Take me out of this. Fix it. Fix it. Fix it. And the truth is that Jesus didn't pray that prayer. He, matter of fact, he turned to the disciples and said, hey, I could pray that prayer, but I'm not going to do it. 
what I'm going to pray is I'm going I'm to turn and have a whole different conversation. And he says, I'm not going to say, Father, save me. But he says, it is for this reason that I came to this hour. So my prayer is going to be knowing, listen, knowing that I'm hearing the Holy Spirit, knowing that I'm walking out my path, even though it's about to get harder than I want it to get. My prayer is, Father, glorify your name. Or Father, glorify yourself. So that is my prayer. It isn't about me. It isn't about what's about to happen to me. It's about, are you going to get glory through this or not? And if you're going to get glory through it, as hard as it's going to be, this is the path I'm going to take this hour for right now. And Jesus surprises everybody. So, so when, he, when, he's, when he gets a chance to really break it down for them, he, he gives this great word picture about the kernel of wheat. And so I'm not a farmer, but I've looked at the kernel and I've, and I've, and I've studied it a little bit. And at first, at first glance, you think, okay, he's taking a kernel of wheat, he's throwing it on the ground, okay, and we're wasting it. But what the whole word picture is that when, it, when it's thrown down and it falls to the ground, instead of dying and just disintegrating, it doesn't become crushed and doesn't become annihilated. And listen to me, this is a word for somebody today. God is not trying to crush you. He is not trying to annihilate you and rip your heart out. He isn't trying to allow the crisis in your life to destroy you. And like this kernel of wheat, it can look that way for a second. But actually what's happening is the kernel of wheat is on the ground. It's fallen. It's, it's, it's breaking open. It's dying and it's actually breaking open. Why? So that the life inside of it, the multiplied seeds inside of it can spring forth. And so death, in this case, brings life. And many times in a crisis, we get stuck in the middle fighting with the crisis when really what we need to understand is the opportunity for me to surrender myself to Christ, not to surrender to the, 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 the bullying of a crisis, Okay, we don't want to surrender or let a crisis beat us up, but, but let, that, let the stress of it and let the occasion of it be an opportunity for me to fall on my knees and fall on my face before God and say, God, through this craziness, bring life. Glorify your name through this mess. And how many of us can honestly say that when really what we want to say is, hey, get me out of here, right? Just get me out of here. And many times we're going to miss the life lessons. And so... We had our own crisis not too long ago, about 15 months ago in November, just getting ready for Thanksgiving. I woke up in the middle of the night and I was sick and they took me to the uh, St. Francis Hospital to ride on the helicopter that's there, the little orange one. How many of you have rid- ever ridden on the little orange helicopter that's outside of St. Francis Hospital? Anybody? Yeah? So it's not really a taxi you want to take, right? It's not... That's- you don't ever want to go back and do that again. And so I, I got the privilege of riding on a 20-minute trip from, from Colorado Springs to Denver on that helicopter. And in that trip, I thought I wasn't going to make it. And, and at that moment, when you're, when, you're, when you're flying and you can't think straight and, and you're sick, um, you, you, are, you realize, hey, I'm in a crisis. This is serious. This is not normal. And so we're, we're, we're going to talk about it a little bit from a different perspective because I don't remember a lot of it. And so my wife was blogging and journaling during that time in order to kind of vent and, and, and record what was going on. And so I pulled a little bit out of that blog post and just want to read it to you. And so here, this is my wife, say, this is my wife speaking as she wrote about this crisis that got me on the helicopter. It says, around 1.45 a.m., I startled awake with Billy standing over me. He very calmly said, I need, to, I need you to drive me to the ER. At the ER, the triage nurse says, what is your pain on a scale of 1 to 10? He's quiet and controlled, and he says, it's a 10. No, it's an 11. No, it's actually a 12. 
I was keenly aware that this wasn't normal. They treated him for a migraine, but no relief. Then they talked about a pinched nerve he had in his neck with no relief. Finally, the doctor said, let's do a CAT scan. Shortly after, thereafter, the doctor comes in and sits close to me. And, and if you've ever been in, the, in that arena before, you know that when the ER doc comes and sits down beside you and you're the husband or you're the wife, that's bad. And so, so he says this, he speaks in a low voice and he says, Mrs. Ramsdell, it's good that you came here. There's bleeding in, in your husband's brain. It could be a bleeding aneurysm or something in that category. I don't see the source of the bleeding and we don't treat this here. I've already called the brain center in Denver. There's, there's no need for you to not stay calm, especially since they want, a, they want a life flight, Billy, to the hospital and you'll need to drive there. So this is my wife writing. She says, after they were sta- after, or as if they were standing in the hall, just waiting for the doctor to get those words out, six people come crashing in the room. They introduce themselves as the pilot and the flight nurse, etc., and a bunch of things that I didn't hear. One of their jobs was clearly to keep me focused and distracted. Squaring my shoulders, explaining how it's important that I make the hour-long drive carefully because I couldn't alter the outcome by driving crazy. Crazy, huh? They had me walk with Billy as he, lo- as he loaded him into the helicopter and helped me to my car as it took off. As I shut the door, I temporarily forgot what I was doing. And isn't that normal for a crisis? You ever been in a crisis moment where something serious has happened and your brain, you just have a total brain deadness, right? You don't know what to do next. It's amazing how the body and how the mind does that. But she, she gets in the car and she says, I shut the door and forgot what I was doing. A minute or so later, I breathed a deep breath and said out loud, Shanna, call Denise. That's my mother. And so she says, I called Billy's mom at 4 a.m. and let off with, no one has died, but. And so how many of you have suffered through some kind of crisis where there's a but and then there's a story? Sometimes it doesn't end where you want it to end. It ends in death. It ends in divorce. It ends in mayhem. It ends in abuse. It ends in jail. It ends in a lot of different things. It ends in lawsuits or it ends in you name it. And all of us have those stories that our families are familiar with. And so today, uh, I just want you to know that suffering is something that I'm familiar with. And when, when I went through that from my perspective, what I remember is waking up with a headache and taking some medicine and it not getting better. And then being rushed to the ER and sitting there feeling in such pain that I couldn't put sentences together. I couldn't think straight. And all I could do is grab my head and put my head down in my lap and squeeze it so hard that I dug my fingernails into my skull until it bled. And, and I didn't know what to do at that point. They didn't know what to do with me. And so suffering is something that I'm familiar with. And I think that all of us have, when I say crisis, or when I say family crisis, you think of that moment where you lost your job and you have to go home and tell your spouse, hey, I'm unemployed. Or that day where, where you find out that your husband or your wife has a different person, a different lover, a different family in a different direction, and they're not coming back. Or the day where you get the diagnosis and it's a serious illness. It's not going to clear up quickly and you've got to go home and take that message home and deal with it. It could be the pregnancy of a teenager. Hey, mom, guess what? i got something to tell you. And you had this life and you had this plan and we had school and you had all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden you had a 13-year-old or a 14 or a 15-year-old who is pregnant or has gotten someone pregnant. It could be a runaway kid. It could be that moment where the kid says, I hate you, and they walk out the door. And so this, the list goes on and on of moments that aren't just a little thing, but it's a crisis. It's a moment that redefines your week and your month and your year. And so those are, those are moments that are real for us. And I want to walk us through some help. But to do that, we have to lay a foundation. And there's a couple things that I want to say to lay a foundation. One is that in the midst of all of this, 
and you read the scriptures that we just read in John, I always say, God, what's the one, what's the one linchpin that can make this not be terrible? What's the one thing that could come in and make this better? And the word is hope. And so this morning, if I can relay anything to you, it is that I want you to, I want you to feel passionate about fighting for hope. Not fighting with the crisis, not fighting with your spouse, not fighting with your job, not fighting with your health problem, not fighting with whatever it is, but to learn to, to fight for hope, to go after hope, and to try to figure out what that is. And here's my experience over 20 plus years of walking with the Lord and being in the ministry. It's one of those things, it's a little four-letter word, but it's really hard for us to get our arms around. If I were to walk around and ask each one of you, hey, tell me what hope is, we'd get all these different answers. Because hope is one of those things that unless you have it, it's hard to describe. And I know that people can walk, down a, walk through a crisis and they can get to the point where they're, they're, having to, they're suffering and they're having to make decisions. And you can watch people walk down this path because they have hope and they have a different perspective. And then other people walk down this path. And their stories end up, their crisis might have been the same, but their story in the end ends up being very, very different. And a lot of times it isn't because the crisis went away for one person and not for the other. A lot of times it's because one person walked with a different kind of hope in their heart than the other. And so today, if we're going to really chase after anything, I think God has a gift called hope, and we need to to understand that. So here's some observations to help us, okay? Uh, One observation. Families in crisis are under attack, okay? Families in crisis are under attack. The, The goal there is divorce or depression or dysfunction and ultimately destruction of the family unit. It started with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve... When Adam and Eve sinned, their kids were violent and angry and jealous and murderous. And so immediately crisis came into the home. Do you think crisis came into that first home just to cause violence? No, it came into that first home to destroy the family, to destroy the heritage of that family, to destroy the legacy of that family. The goal wasn't just anger. The goal wasn't just murder. The goal wasn't just jealousy. The goal was actually to destroy the legacy of that family. And so many times we, 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 under, we, we encounter a crisis and we don't understand there's something else going on here. There's more happening than just what's at face value. There's a, there's a saying that says, hurt people hurt people. And so that's really true. Once you've been hurt, your tendency is to go hurt. And so we need to understand our families are at risk and we're at risk of being a, a person who spreads that if we're not careful. The second thing is we need to understand that children will often... And this is really empowering to your parents. Children will often follow suit with the parents and watch and take cues from the parents when they're in the middle of a crisis. So when a crisis hits, and we've been through many of them, many, many, many of them um, as a family, our kids are sitting there watching us to see, is dad going to freak out? Because if dad freaks out and loses it, then they don't feel secure. If dad is peaceful and calm then they feel safe. And a lot of times the kids will learn, they're being trained by watching us. So there's more at stake when we talk about managing family crisis than what we think. Really, it's a training opportunity for our children. And so the third one is this. I believe that, I believe not only is hope the answer, I believe it's the only answer. And I really don't understand how people can get married, how people can walk through problems in their life without hope in their heart. And so my conclusion and observation about family stress and family crisis is, is that the hope of Jesus Christ, and we've got we to define that by saying this is a hope that isn't wishing. It isn't fantasy. It isn't I hope something happens like I hope we eat lunch at Olive Garden. 
Okay, This is an actual spiritual dynamic. It's a deposit down in your heart that God puts something eternal in you that helps you trust Him no matter what's going on at face value. And without that hope, I don't, I'm not sure where we're going, but we have to understand that this is a godly hope. It's a hope that's derived from faith in Christ. Not just, it doesn't happen by coming to church. It doesn't happen by getting around good people. It doesn't happen by being good. A godly hope is, is you get it through faith in Christ alone. And so if you pull out your bulletin real quick, we're going we're gonna to go through some, some of the stuff that's on the outline. If you're a note taker, this will be your opportunity to write some stuff down. And there's three types of family crisis, and it's important that you at least come to, come to grips with the fact that they exist. It does, we're not going to study them deeply, but to understand that there's short-term crisis. There's things that happen to us, and then they go away. Okay, and many times in a normal walk of life, we're, we're okay at managing these. Okay, we're not great at it, but most of the time it doesn't annihilate us. It doesn't send us derailed, and, and it makes us question and hurts a little bit, but we move on. The, the second one is long-term crisis. And, and, and the reason why I point that out is because, listen, you and I have to be ready for that to understand that a crisis that lasts months and months and months is something that attacks everything that we are. It drains us. It, it, it threatens everything about us. And so having, having a consciousness that's saying, hey, I, I got to address this. I can't let it continue to go on. I have to be able to, to deal with this. Because the third, the third one is even the more risky. The more risky. It's the unresolved crisis. It's the one that doesn't get resolved. And many times when I counsel with people or, or I'm dealing with people who are in a crisis, especially if it was a sort of a self-caused thing, it's a money thing or a marriage thing or, or, or a crime thing or whatever, and they had something to do with it, a lot of times I'm being brought in or a pastor's being brought in kind of after the fact or during and a lot of times, when you start talking to them, there's all this unresolved issues in their life going back years and years and years. It could be sin. It could be things that were done to them. But it's there. Premarital counseling, for instance, is a great opportunity. When we did premarital counseling, we went through 31, 31 things that we were kind of forced to talk about. And I want to, I want to you know, with everything from money to, you know, how many children you're going to have to who does the dishes, right? And so these are all potential train wrecks at home once you get married. And it was interesting because about half of those things that we talked about were issues that where I had unresolved conflict in my heart about because, because, because of my childhood. So if somebody hadn't brought it up and I hadn't dealt with it, it really would have been toxic for me to bring into my marriage. And so, so unresolved crisis in your own heart, in your own life can be toxic and be detrimental. So the next thing to realize is there's three realities about a family crisis. Now these, th- these are empowering to you if you'll, if you'll take them and run with them. The realities are, there's a human reality. There's a human reality that says, hey, you know what? This just hurts. It's just painful. And that's okay when something is done to you or around you. When we all stood there and watched buildings fall or when, when we know about brothers that are, in, in, um, or that are deployed who are being injured, hurt, or killed. When we, when we know someone who has a child that passes away. We have a friend who their child got ran over by a car. When you have, when you have crisis going on in your family, it's, it's almost disrespectful to, to not let people just hurt and let people just cry and feel it. And so there's a human reality to that, that you're, we're involved. All of, our, all of our emotions are mixed in it. Jesus demonstrated that in John when we read that. He said, my soul is troubled. As a human, he was saying, this feels wrong. This doesn't feel good. This feels bad. 
And so there's, 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 there's a place, though, where we got to move on and understand that the next one is there's a heavenly reality. And that involves things like faith and hope and, and the Word of God and things that are dynamic and heavenly. And, we need, and, and the biggest message that I want to communicate out of there is that from a heaven's perspective, we often look for God. We want to know where is heaven? Where's God? Where's God now? Where's God in the middle of my mess? Why wasn't he there? And I just want to say from the heavenly reality concerning you and your crisis is that God is there. God sees it. He sees it all. And he is a father and he hurts when you hurt. And that just like my son who might fall and, and, and bust his knee wide open riding his bicycle and I might run over there and help him. I don't completely rescue him from never falling down and scraping his knee again right? There's, there's some things to being a parent where it says, okay, this is part of living. This is part of being a human. This is part of life. And I'm here. And we need to understand that heaven is here. And part of what I see when I talk to people is that there's a real shallow belief that God is on my side. But when you're going through a crisis, you need to understand there's a heavenly perspective. And that is, is that God is as close to you then as he ever will be. He may not be a vending machine where you walk over and pray a prayer and say, God, I want this solved or I want this to go away. And you just pull the lever or push the button and it goes away. He's not our vending machine. It may be that he's a loving father and he's going to walk with you through it. And that's, that's the heavenly perspective on that. The other reality is the hellish reality. And many of us avoid the hellish reality. We don't want to think about it or talk about it. But here's, here's the hellish reality. The hell, hellish reality has a lot to do with the fact that bitterness and hate and unforgiveness and death and addiction and codependency are all attacks of the enemy. They're all strategies and tactics of our enemy, the enemy of our faith and the enemy of our life in order to entangle us and entwine us and to destroy us. And the scriptures say that. They say that our, 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 our war is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And, and the scriptures talk about how it isn't, it isn't, the crisis isn't our fight. Our faith is our fight. And so today you're going to hear that as, as a message. Let's grow in our faith. Let's, let's come to a different spot in our faith and understand that the, he, the, the hellish reality wants to pull that away from us, wants to rip that away from us. It wasn't, listen, it wasn't just that the enemy tried to kill me in November of 2013 while I was innocent laying in my bed and all of a sudden my brain began to bleed because I'm sealed. I'm sealed with the promise. I have the Holy Spirit in my heart. The minute that I leave this earth, I'm with Jesus. Okay, and then who's laughing? Then I'm turning around laughing at him. But here's what he knows. He knows that if he can mess with dad, then he can mess with Ben and he can mess with Victoria and he can mess with Hosanna and he can mess with Shanna and he can mess with the legacy that we're trying to leave. So was his strategy completely to kill me? No. Some of it was to, was to, to infiltrate us and to pull what God was doing in our family apart and to unravel it. And so we, we have to recognize that for what it is. The other thing that we're gonna, we're gonna take away is that is that there's directions that crisis send us down. We go in different paths whenever we, whenever we encounter a crisis. So there's many directions that a crisis will send us down. One of them is a reverse direction. And guys, I, you know, it's almost like this. When you get punched in the face, you kind of back up, right? I mean, that's self-explanatory. You want to go away from the pain. So I get that. But we just need to understand that it's a temptation for us to back away from life, back away from what we're doing, become isolated, become scared, to operate out of fear. 
Because now we've, enti- we've encountered some kind of crisis in some direction and it's pushing us backwards. And that's a ploy of the enemy and we need to realize it. The other, the other one is, is that we can go in a forward direction. I mean, you know people that do that, right? They go through something that's super hard, but they use it as a springboard to the next thing. And, and, that's, and that's what we really want to talk about. The last one is, is the, the really the scary part. It's the lack of direction. And I meet people all the time who... who we're trying to figure out kind of where they are and figure out what's going on in this family crisis or in the marriage crisis or whatever. And the truth is, they're just stuck. They're stuck in their heart. They're stuck in their mind. They're stuck in life. They don't know where to go. They don't, they don't feel the unction of the Holy Spirit leading them anywhere. They don't have any hope to go in any particular direction. They're not really believing that God is on their side, so they should push forward in one direction or another. And they're just stuck. And I want to say to you today that that is okay to be stuck. It's not okay to stay stuck. And God is on your side and he wants to help you. He wants to help you. So how do we get help? We learn some lessons. And the way we learn some lessons is we really focus on, on what am I trying to learn here? So let's go to the, the next slide that talks about preparation. And preparation is one of those things that there's an 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule is this. It says, it says that when you encounter a crisis... The lesson, the preparation lesson says that 80% of managing that crisis is in how you've already prepared. Because you're only going to have about 20% of bandwidth and brain power and stuff to react in the moment. Because when you go into a serious crisis, most of the time, all the white noise in your world and all the busyness in the world and all the things that you're managing and all the things you're doing, they go away. And you get zeroed in on just what's happening to me today. I'm just trying to survive this crisis now. If your house burns down or if you get divorced or somebody is in jail or something else is happening. I got into a tragic car accident or I just found out I have leukemia or whatever. All of a sudden everything goes away and you're just managing that one thing. And so really how you get through that has to do with how well are you prepared to get through it. So in our instance, we found out a few things and we made a short list of things. Going through a brain bleed and surviving it meant that we really had to analyze kind of what what went on. And so here's some things that went on. We realized that in our preparation, prayer was at the top of the list. Over 20 years, we had learned how to connect with God. We learned how to have devotions. We learned how to intercede. We learned how to come down on church on Sunday when, when everybody wouldn't. We would come down and kneel at the altar and put our face down on the, on the carpet and say, God, we need your help. We realized how to pray with our kids, how to pray with each other. We realized how to pray in the good days and on the bad days. And we had realized how through, no matter what was going on, to stay connected to God, surrendered to God, listening to God through prayer. And so when the moment hit that the crisis happened and we, and we looked around and said, God, where are you? Where are you in my mess? We were able to connect with him in prayer. And that isn't kudos to us. That is kudos to God's Holy Spirit by his grace, him allowing us that open door to continue to stay connected. But we we nurtured that over the years before the big crisis happened. The other one was the word of God. Through the word of God, we learned about the fear of God. We learned about the knowledge of God. Learned about a lot of different things that, that, that helped us stay connected. So as far as preparation goes, the word of God is right up there. I mean, we really, really have to understand that without it, without it, when you get in a moment where you are lonely and empty and suffering and you need something to reach down into your heart and pull out, you will reach down and pull out nothing. 
And that is a very lonely and dangerous place to be. You would rather have the word of God stored up in your heart. The Bible says it's life to us and health to our flesh. The Bible says it's our direction. The Bible says it's our source of everything. And so the word of God. So in that time where I'm in the hospital and I'm in ICU for 12 days, having dementia and having night terrors because, I, because of a brain bleed, I would turn on my iPhone and lay it there and let it just play the Bible over and over and over. Because when I was weak, I needed something that was strong. And I'm telling you today, there's nothing stronger than the Bible. There's nothing stronger than the Word of God. And so the other thing that we learned was, was the presence of God. We learned how to worship and just stay in God's presence. And I tell you what, we cashed in on that during that season. My wife would ride home an hour every day and just worship and just cry and just give her heart to Jesus as she rode. But if you're not a worshiper, if you don't know what it feels like to worship a holy God and then all of a sudden life is in a mess... It won't necessarily be your first knee-jerk reaction. And so, so, so if you haven't figured that out ahead of time, you need to. And so the last one is the family of God. I want you to do an experiment as we end here in a second by looking around. I want you to look around you right now. That's not metaphoric for not look around. Because I see what's happening, right? All the dudes are going, what did he just say? I'm looking around? I'm not looking around. All of a sudden, they get stiff and they go like this. I'm not looking at anybody. Are you kidding me? You freak. No, seriously, look at each other. Because right now, we all will take it for granted today that, that, that we're sitting in this big room full of people who are full of Jesus and love each other, and we're going to come and go. We're going to punch our time card and kind of not talk to a lot of people, and we're going to come and go. But if you all of a sudden end up in a crisis, or they end up in a crisis where you need them, This is the family of God. This is the place that you can turn. And I don't mean this building. I mean the people. And we never realized that more than when when I got life flighted and the next morning when people started to find out and how we started to get visits and texts and Facebook and and food and things started dropping on our house. And people said, man, I got you. I'm covering you. I'm praying for you. Because for 20 years, we had had this revelation that we need to be connected to other people. And so today, I want you to ask yourself, are you seriously connected to other people? Are you in a Bible study? Are you in a small group? Are you going to a class here? Do you have a significant, listen, do you have a significant connection to other believers in the body of Christ? Because if you don't, then you are at risk. You're at risk and you need that. And it's fair that you get that. Your marriage needs it. Your kids need it. You need it. And so we provide a lot of opportunities here for you to jump into those things and grow in those relationships. And so the last, the last three um, sentences in your outline, I'll give them to you, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on them. They, they are the purpose lesson, the priority lesson, and the perseverance lesson. And, and here's, here's the deal. You rethink everything when you go through a crisis. You start asking, where is God? And you redefine your priorities. You redefine the purpose in your life. And you start asking, what is the purpose of this event that I'm going through? And you start asking a lot of questions. Perseverance leads to character and character leads to hope. And that faith that wells up out of that is something that will hold, that will hold you steady and will carry you through. But let me ask you this question. Have you got the first part right? Because if faith in God, in Christ alone, as the beginning point, isn't taken care of, that when, then all the preparation of learning things and preparing really doesn't happen. It doesn't work. And so today, we really want to look at the, the conclusion statement that's on your outline. 
Let's read it together. It's just on here, and I'll just read it, and you can follow along. It says, in conclusion, God can use any crisis as a tool to bring growth and development through our pain by His power for His glory. The biblical key to surviving and learning from and growing through a crisis is this phrase. It's living by faith. And faith is another one of those things that's just out there sometimes and we don't know what to do with it. And so, but let me, let me just nail it down for us to say this. Preparation starts with Christ and it starts with becoming a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. And so today, the big, the big challenge isn't to become better at managing a crisis. Hopefully I gave you some, some tools and hints on what that might look like. But the truth is that, are you prepared? And the only way you can be prepared is to have, is have a right relationship with Christ and to know that you have it, to know that you have that hope in your heart, to know that you're filled with faith in Christ, to know that there was a day on the calendar where you said, I am laying down my life, I'm not in charge anymore, and I'm surrendering to Christ. And it's the picture of the, of the kernel of wheat. Where it, where it breaks apart and where all of a sudden life springs out. So I, I'd like to ask you if you would stand to your feet and we're going to close out the service by offering you a chance to make that decision. And you know what? I, I'm not shy about it. I, when I, on February 28, 1990, I gladly walked down an aisle of a little Baptist church and stood in the front to talk to the preacher and said, you know what? There, I don't have Christ in my heart. I don't know that hope that you're talking about. I, I go to church and blah, 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 but I don't really know it. I've never done it. And so today there's got to be, there's got to be that moment that you just nail that down. And so if you haven't had that, we want to just pray with you and pray with you about that. The second thing we want to do is to say, hey, we get it that you're in a crisis. So if you're in a moment where there's struggle, we want to be able to partner with you and love on you and pray with you. And so these prayer partners are going to come down forward. And I just, I just implore you to say, if you're not sure about where you are with Christ and faith in Christ, come down and talk to one of these prayer partners and let them talk, talk it through with you and pray with you. And then if you need prayer for anything about a struggle or a crisis, let us pray with you. Amen. You guys don't be shy. Come on down now. We'll be down here waiting for you. Thanks for listening to today's message. Be sure to join us again next time.